Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime, sponsored through the Center of Crime Victim Services here in the state of Vermont. I am Anna Nassett, and I'm your host of this bi-monthly podcast and show. Today on the show, I am delighted to have my friend, survivor, and all-around amazing human, Lenora Clare. Thanks for being here. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. Yes, this show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We wanna acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not just here in our state, but throughout the country that could benefit victims of crime as they begin to mend. As always, I do wanna offer a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but with that in mind, we may occasionally hear a story related to crime, discuss our mental health, or have other sensitive subject matter. We urge you to listen at your own discretion. It is my privilege to introduce Lenora Clare, who is a survivor of multiple violent crimes, an advocate, activist, entertainment industry professional, and member of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Crime Victims Advisory Board. After Lenora and her case were featured on 48 Hours, Dr. Oz, CBS News, Crime Watch Daily, The Stalker Files, Mysteries and Scandals, and People Magazine, as well as many other media and podcasts, Lenora realized she had a unique background, prepared her well for navigating production and on-camera interviews. Lenora is also the owner of Lenora Claire Consulting. As an on-set liaisons, Lenora and her team members provide the necessary bridge between victims and survivors and production to ensure the best possible experience for all parties. Lenora has also created a survivor-led panel to review content and recommend best practices for producers of true crime content. As a casting producer for a decade, Lenora has cultivated an exponential roster featuring on-camera talent ranging from high-profile survivors and investigators to experts, advocates, and activists. Thank you so much for being here, Lenora. Yeah, thank you again for having me. It's so nice to be able to connect with you in this way. I'm really looking forward to this. Absolutely. Lenore and I met um, a few years ago, and while we've never met in person, I consider her one of my sisters in arms. Uh, we are a handful of stalking survivors out there speaking and sharing our stories. And through this, we've been able to support one another, discuss awareness, change around stalking, and found an immense amount of similarities down to, in our lives, down to our tiny dogs, hers Nomi and mine Dolly, because I think we both feel like our dogs should always get a mention. <laughs> so welcome. Um, as we begin, can you give a short interview and only with what you're comfortable sharing about how you were called to this work? Wow. Um, I mean, I guess it's being an 11 year survivor, right? And I want to say, um, Wow. Uh, I was shocked when I brought, so I had a very different experience than you did when I first brought my case. I mean, I had a stack of really horrific rape, death, and kidnap threats. And when I brought it to law enforcement, I, I'll, I'll just be honest, they they told me to dye my hair, get off the internet. And I was really shocked by that response. Uh, I would say that I sort of normalized that, which is like insane to think for a good three or so years and then my stalker, who I, I have to sort of take it back a little bit, he has, you know, a really scary history. I didn't know this um, at the time, but he was stalking Ivanka Trump in New York, and he had actually tried to kill himself in her store. So when my stalker sent a death threat to my boss, you know, everybody is so terrified of workplace violence. 
And I don't know if your listeners are like me. It's it's one thing when you threaten me, but then when you start to threaten someone I love, suddenly it was like, okay, this can't happen. And I, I went I went back to police hoping for a better response. And it was just, it was terrible. And then it was at that point, and this was prior to me too. I was just like, you know what? I need to come forward. I need to tell my story. I need to get active. I Through a series of events, I was connected to Congressman Adam Schiff, which is where you know, some of that work started happening. And then just by my good fortune, the first TV show that I did, they teamed me up with this incredible woman, Rhonda Saunders, who was the former ADA um, when Rebecca Schaefer's uh, trial was happening. And so she's just this incredible force. And she was really instrumental in creating the first stalking laws, not just in California, but the entire country. Mm -hmm. So suddenly I had this mentor. I went from just feeling like I was floating in space. You know, there's not a whole lot of community at this, at this point. I hadn't met people like yourself yet. And so I was just like in this really like, you know, I want to do something. What do I do? And anyway, that's the sort of genesis about how all this started for me. Thank you for sharing. And I think it's so important for listeners to know who have heard my story that, as I always say, like my story is not the outcome we normally get. It's the outcome yeah. we should get. But um, Lenora's is the outcome that is so often. And we just turn this work into advocacy to advocate for ourselves and for others. And I was speaking this morning. I think that was one of the things I shared, too, is like once those threats came outside of me, once it wasn't just threatening me, but it was threatening others as well as like I'm I have a due diligence like I need to protect everyone around me. Um, and that's so often what happens for victims in this situation is we're considered dangerous and we want to protect all of those around us. That's right. Um, so we know it's Stalking Awareness Month and you and I could do an, hours and hours of speaking about that. But if you listen to last week's podcast, you can hear all about stalking information from the Stalking Awareness Resource Center. So we're going to talk about some other things today. We're going to address some of stalking, but also just talk about what it looks like to be an ongoing victim, a survivor, and how these things look. So now this isn't the case for all, like, you know, we don't, sorry, I lost my question for a minute. <laughs> so one of the things that you and I had discussed was that when we talk about stalking, one of the things that people often will say to us is you're a survivor, you're not a victim. And we are still because it's ongoing. Now, this isn't the case for everyone, how we identify with ourselves, but I'd love to discuss with you and kind of peel back that curtain in a little bit of ways about how we heal while being an active victim or survivor. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, first of all, like identity is a really fluid thing, right? And depending on the time of day that you catch me, right? I might be very in the like, I have been victimized, this was taken from me, or I might be in the very empowered, like I am a survivor. You know, again, it's it, you, you can feel that emotion in the range of an hour. Um, but, you know, it's so interesting you bring up the healing part of the conversation, because I think so many of us are kind of focused on the concept around justice and what that means. And I know, you know, your offenders incarcerated currently, mine was, he was convicted of felony stalking max, and I subsequently had to put him in multiple times. So I've had the thing that's really, we both have, that's like so rare to get, which is that, but is that justice? No, my my situation is ongoing. I'm, I'm in the middle of, I have to be very careful what I say because I have something happening right now and he may very well be listening to this when this airs. So I have to be aware of that. So bringing back to the healing conversation, when you sort of go justice, like what it, what is that? What does that mean? But, you know, regardless, I have to be a functioning person. I, 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 there's too much for me to do in this world for me to really 
I mean, that's what they want to do, right? They they want to infiltrate every aspect of our life and, and control us in that way. So um, this past year for me, it's been really transformative, like focusing on the healing aspect. That's like a, been a really big shift for me. And I, that's something that I'm so glad we're talking about that because that really isn't part of the conversation, right? It's so much of the conversation is either it's how can you protect yourself? How do you get justice? What does that look like? But it's not really that. Are you okay? What do, yeah. what do we need to do to be okay? Absolutely. I think that's so important that we look at that just like, and especially as people out there speaking and being loud about this, oftentimes people think we are okay. And even if you got the max sentence like I did, or your offender is currently out, it doesn't necessarily mean we're okay. And especially when you look at the trajectory of the future of going, okay, even if I put this guy back in tomorrow, this doesn't mean it ends. And I think it's a really challenging place to be in as far as healing when there is no conclusion until until I'm gone or he's gone. Yeah, it's really different than other trauma, right? Like most other trauma, this is like, for a lot of us, I don't want to say everybody, but it's complex PTSD, Mm -hmm. right? Like other things, there's the event and then you can begin to heal from the event. These are ongoing series of events. So it's really important to sort of treat it that way and, and, and look at it that way. Um, you know, it's it's just a really unique, nuanced crime. We use the word nuance like eight million times in conversation because it is. And it's also really unique to the individual, too. And that's like another thing when we're, we're talking about this. But you and I are in a sort of a, a, a weird place, which is, you know, we're we're supporting other survivors while we're dealing with ourselves and like there have been times and it's so beautiful when we get to talk about this because I don't get to have this with many peers where, you know, depending on what's going with my thing, like it's really difficult when I'm counseling people, you know, and they're just like, this will be over. Right. And I'm like, you know, because maybe I've gotten an email that day. Um, right. So it's tricky work, but I really think that all we can do is, you know, as much risk minimization as possible and, you know, just all the best practices and then focus on the healing to get through it as best we can. Yeah, absolutely. And find those new ways of healing. I know that's kind of what I'm starting to look at as well is just, you know, with whether it be with my therapist or whatever I'm practicing at home is like, okay, maybe we need some different tools in the toolkit. Maybe what we've been doing in the past doesn't work. And it's, it's stretching and it's good. It's good and pushing me, but it's still, it's that uncomfortable, but it's also kind of taking taking that power back to however I need to heal is what's right for me. Yeah. One of the biggest things that I've sort of felt in the past two or so years is really the idea of community because I had been doing, you know, I've been like doing the therapy, all the different sort of traditional healing modalities and doing all that stuff. And there's something really, because when you're being stalked, so oftentimes you're, you're kind of internalizing, you're definitely not trying to be but for most of us public, right? So the idea of connecting with others, you're sort of experiencing this by yourself. It's very isolating. Mm -hmm. So now that I've sort of shifted it and more the community aspect, and I've noticed this, this isn't really relevant to me because I'm not former intimate partner, neither are you, but I've noticed (coughs) that a lot of times when I'm working with survivors or a former intimate partner, they can be really hard on themselves. You know, there's this sort of like, I chose this, but right, all this sort of stuff, which I, I don't experience, I don't think you do either. And so I always say to them, like, don't make this harder on yourself. This is sort of the hardest situation. But when I've noticed we're in these like community spaces and they look out at all these other amazing people, there's something really validating where you're like, wait a second. It isn't, it isn't just me. This isn't mm-hmm. just a choice that I made. Cause I, and I say that too, I'm like, 
when you look at it, all these people, do you judge them? And they say, no, of course not. And I'm like, yep. well, then don't be a hypocrite and don't do it to yourself. Right. Yeah. So I, I think the community and just being able to like talk to you, for, it, it's so awesome. It's so great. So definitely, I always want to encourage if possible, if people are comfortable, the community aspect, because I think that's something that you know, absolutely. Really I mean, I think like this crime or other any kind of gender based violence, it gets so isolating and so lonely. And and unless others have experienced it, it's so hard for them to respond in that way. I, I know through when when we finally went to trial a couple of years ago, the few friends that I had come support me afterwards are like in all of the years, we never got it until now. We never saw the absolute horrificness and terror of this until sitting through this trial. And and so it, I think it is so important that we connect. Like, I love when we get to connect and just kind of drop in and be like, all right, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. And that does really change it. And I think it starts to allow us to see outside of ourselves as well. For sure. One question I'm really interested to, I mean, these are all questions I'm interested about talking to. So, um but one of the things I think is really interesting is as survivors of multiple forms of gender-based violence, what does safety look like for you? What does that mean to you? Just that kind of broad word of safety. Wow. Um, for me, I think the thing that I really needed to work on was safety and relationships. And, you know, because there's something about, and I use this analogy a lot, which is I sort of, I, I compare it to a condom with sex, right? It's like you wear the condom because that's the best practice that reduces the risk. Nothing is a hundred percent, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I say that with all this stuff, just go, I wasn't, you know, I still had to go through the world. I still had to show go up to places. You know, I couldn't like not be on social media. I couldn't do those things. So I had to come to a place where I was just like, I'm doing as much as I can to, you know, increase my safety. But the thing that was really important to me, because, you know, I, I am also, I, I don't talk about it as frequently, but also a survivor of sexual violence and domestic violence, all at different times in my life, mm -hmm. very common, a lot of us are, you know, it was the, it was the safety in the relationship and, and really feeling that I was deserving of that and not that I was just this person with all this baggage, you know, which is what something that a lot of us, a lot of us can have. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, really working to have that. And again, not saying that like a relationship is everybody's happy ending. I want to be very clear that that's not what I'm getting at, but there's something about really, really working to have that supportive partner and, and feel safe at home that like gave, gave me so much stability um, as well as doing all the external stuff. But I'm curious what safety means with you. I think for me, um, oftentimes safety, I've gone through most of this journey as a single woman. So, yeah. I mean, I have dated off and on during it, but that I wouldn't really say so much. But for me, safety has been found in home. Safety has been found in, if you walk into my apartment, there is art, plants, tchotchkes, weird collections of things everywhere because for so long that was the only place I felt safe was in those four walls mm -hmm. so and I mean a lot of victims it's the opposite they don't feel that safety at home but for me that's kind of how I've created that is to create this space that when I'm in those those places when I'm feeling scared when I'm any of those things I can look around and see that familiarity of 
friends, that familiarity of my past life, of the life I'm creating now, and just be kind of held in that and reminded to continue on. Um, I do like a lot of safety planning in my life too. I mean, I think that it doesn't matter that he's incarcerated. Those fears will always be there. So I'm the one who, I don't know if you're the same, but if you go out to dinner with me, I get to pick my seat first because everyone knows. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're like military. We're like, no, everyone knows like where does Anna need to sit? Okay, now we all Mm -hmm. sit around. But even that safety is being able to vocalize that. And so that my friends know, they already know that. They know that that's part of me feeling comfortable and safe. And so they just, without even thinking, do that. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And just and just to piggyback on all that, which I agree with, and you're right, the hypervigilance, it doesn't ever go away. That's just part of our personality now. But it's also, you know, the, the social circle. I would definitely say my social circle changed a lot. It, I didn't, I'm, I am, you know, some of the people remain, but anybody who made me feel unsafe or, you know, there were people who, I understand that they just can't relate, they don't understand it, but they would say really harmful things. Like I had people saying to me, well, aren't you kind of flattered? He's kind of good, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, you know, so safety can just mean that I just think you're a safe person to exist in my life, right? And yeah. that's I think also really important. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more of just like those inappropriate com- comments. And I've heard all of them as well, like lead to that feeling of unsafety. So bringing in those tribe, you know, those people that you can connect with. And I know even now, like I live, you know, three hour time difference from where I used to live. And I know I can still call up my best friends at any time and just be like, woof, do you remember when that happened? They're like, oh yeah, girl, we got you. And that's a really beautiful thing to find. So in your advocacy work, how are you able to support survivors through advocacy while still being an active victim? And we touched on that a little bit. I, I know that so many of us are called to this work because of what happened in the past. And additionally, like, what would you say to listeners who are in crisis mode, who are in an active harmful situation, but have that desire to help others through advocacy? This is the, this is such an important question because I will admit, I think I was guilty of it maybe seven years ago. I'm on, I'm very far into my journey as you are, but like seven years ago, I was so raw and so fresh in it. And I had to have meaning and purposes of what was happening to me, but I was so far from okay. I hadn't gone to court yet. I had like, I didn't have anything. I was just, and I was like, that's when my activism and advocacy started. And I, I really looking back, it was important work to do, but was I in the best emotional and mental state to be doing it? Absolutely not. Like I heard, I would, <laughs> yeah, and like, right. And you're like, and you're like, why am I exhausted all the time? Why? And it's like, because you're feeling all the feelings and then you're cranking it up to, you know? And so definitely like, it is okay to sit back and have goals for yourself and say like, I, you know, I want to volunteer here. I want to do X, Y, and Z, but I need to like, be like, I need to be in the okay place before they do that. Because a lot of times survivors will go into these spaces and they'll end up like trauma dumping on everybody else. And it's, you know, and it's like this whole thing. And it's like, maybe don't center yourself exactly in this moment, but maybe you need to, because you're very raw. So maybe this isn't the right space for you. You know, it's like, it's kind of a lot of that. Right. So it's definitely, and it's also really hard when you're early on to like fully assess yourself. So I think it's okay to like, just take a breath and go, I will get there. I will, I will fulfill these goals that I have, but like, am I okay? And you really, you know, otherwise 
that was something that I maybe like three years ago, someone asked me like people, especially we're in the beginning of the year, people, what's your word of the year? And like three years ago, I remember my word was humbled. And they're like, what? And I was like, I have been so humbled by realizing how I thought I was so much further in my journey and how raw I still am. Yes. You know, and that happens to all of us. And again, and then there's other people, some people are able to compartmentalize and like, you know, again, we're all individuals, but um, I guess the, the, the greater part of that is you, you will, you will bring something positive, you know, you will use your experience to help others, but just make sure that you're in the best place to do that. Because if not, it will come and bite you in the ass. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I know that for myself, like this is shortly after I moved here to Vermont, I was like, I'm going to change everything. I'm going to work in advocacy. And like, I was still like, he wasn't arrested. It was all chaos. And I applied for a job with an advocacy center here in Vermont. And they asked me if I, you know, was a survivor of anything. I was like, oh yeah. And so I shared with them and I did not get the job. <clears throat> Thankfully, because that would have been like a hot mess. And so I'm glad that they had that wherewithal as well. Um, but it is so challenging because we just, we want to go out there. We want to change things and we want, we want to shift it for others. And yeah, listen to yourself. And I think both of us are like, take the space, take the time to, to find that for yourself and then really see where you fit into this world, whether it be speaking or legislation, or I was saying to somebody, I was doing a presentation on victim impact statements. Like when I wrote my impact statement, I found somebody to edit it. Like even like putting those skills to use in such a myriad of ways is really beautiful. Um, so to look as you're going through your journey, like how does this fit in? Yeah, victim survivors have a lot of needs. There is some way that you can help along the way. Absolutely. It yep. doesn't have to be an all all in this is your job now, but it can it can just it could just be showing up to court with somebody is so meaningful. I mean, there's so many yeah. letting them borrow a court appropriate outfit, whatever. Like there's you're good, you're good at styling, help style your friend for court, whatever. Yep. Like there's just things you can do. You're good at cooking, start a food train, like anything. Right. Like it's just it's exactly. really looking at that comprehensive need that the victim has. Mm -hmm. So how did you feel like as you've kind of gone on? And I mean, I feel like we're both similar in this. Like we go out and we start speaking and doing these things without maybe the tools we needed. So yeah. how do you feel like you are now as you've come into this space of sharing your story and doing so much work? Do you feel better equipped? Oh, yeah. I'm like, I feel like I'm 90% doing great. And then 10% is the day that I give myself the grace to, you know, because for me, mine, mine, mine is flared up. So, yeah. um, you know, and that's also a lot of it's also contingent for where things are with my case, you know, like when I when I feel like I can breathe, or when I feel like I'm like, all of this was I'm right back where I was in you know, 2015, or whatever. It's like, that's, but I, I, I definitely I feel like I have the tools now. I feel like, I've, I've, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like, okay, I've been here before. I know how to get through this. I know who to reach out to. I know what's the positive choice and what's the negative choice to get me through today. So that's, that's where I am with it currently. Awesome. I love that. And I feel like I'm coming into that as well of just like, okay, like I mean, it's, it's very interesting, you know, doing this work through a pandemic and then starting to be out more publicly just in this last year, I've had to really take a couple steps back and reflect and go, okay. How do we do this in a more, a way that better serves me while I'm serving others? Yeah. Yeah. So we are both uh, like so committed to bringing awareness to stalking through sharing our stories and how we work, 
how we do that work while working through our own triggers without trauma, trauma dumping. How are you yeah. able to keep that goal at the forefront of your work? And we've kind of already covered that, but it's just like while we're being triggered or people yeah. are dumping their stuff on us or whatever it might be, how, what are some tools maybe you have that keeps that main goal at the forefront? I think for me, what's, what's helpful, especially when, you know, and so I'm not constantly triggered when, when talking to people is just, is just really sort of, you know, everybody's case is different, everybody, you know, and just sort of, just sort of, look, I compartmentalize a lot. I I remove myself um, from the equation because if I, if I was thinking like, oh, when that happened to me, this is how I felt like I don't need to make it about me. I don't center myself in that. So I really kind of just, I mean, I'll use my, if they ask me my experience, you know, but I, I, I really, I think that's it. I compartmentalize a lot when I'm dealing with individuals and I feel where, which is the difference from say disassociation, which is what was happening early on. I'm not disassociating now I'm present. Right. But I definitely am able to just put Lenora's experience over here and then deal with the individual. And then once I'm interacting with that individual, whether it's in person or over zoom or however we're communicating, it's really easy for me to just focus on them and what their needs are. And chances are, if they're coming to me, it's because they're in crisis. Like for me, it all shifted. Um, when I did an article on me, they called me the Aaron Brockovich of stalking and it went viral. And then suddenly it was just like everywhere. So people would like Google and they'd find me. And it's because they were in crisis, right? Yep. So if you, if you've come to me, something really bad is happening. Cause I don't, I don't do a lot of like the education work that you do. I do constant you know, someone saw me on a show, whatever. And then they're, they're in the middle of their crisis. So I'm getting people actively in crisis. And so it's very easy just to focus on, okay, let's get you out of this crisis moment to some, some place that's better than how I found you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, follow up, cause I, I get a lot of those emails too. And it, it is that challenge, yeah. like, how do I, how do I get you to a better place? And yeah. I think the question would be, yeah, for people going into advocacy now who do have experiences with gender-based violence, had things that have harmed them in the past, like just any thoughts or tools you would have for them, or you kind of just covered it, but it's like, it's that compartmentalization where, because we don't want to go in and trauma dump on somebody and we right. need to have those tools in place to, to step away from that call or that meeting and say, oh, wow, I was really triggered by that. This is what I'm going to go do for myself now. Um, so any thoughts yeah. you might have around that? Um, the only thing I think of that's kind of unique to my experience is a lot of times when people have come to me, it's because they saw me on something. And so they're, they're like, I want media and I have to sit and go, is this the best choice is media? And again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, doesn't, doesn't ultimately matter, but like, I kind of have to walk people through that because people think that that's the best option. And it is a tough, even, and again, I, I came out before me too, even post me too. You will forever, when you Google, that is the first thing that comes up every job, every Tinder day, everything, not to mention law enforcement doesn't always love it. So, you know, there's a, uh, that's like a unique situation that I always have is people are just like, well, that's what worked for you, the media element. And I want to, you know, I want, and I'm just like, I always have to really sort of walk people through that unique conversation, which is, you know, again, it's sometimes it's great, but it's not always the move. Yeah, absolutely. That's something you and I have talked a lot about. And yeah. I mean, you know, like I get a lot of the emails where people are like, how do I get what you got? You got the 10 year sentence. Uh -huh. You got the greatest. I'm like, yeah. it took us yeah. 10 years to get there. Like, 
I, I can't promise you any results. Um, yeah. And that's a really, really challenging thing. Or, you know, how do I get the articles about you? How do I do, how do I get that place? And it's just every, as you and I know, every victim and survivor's journey is different. And yeah. it's finding that path that's right for you and really creating that safety as well. So to kind of segue in, I know that you you do a lot of work with media and you begin to see a huge need to have trauma-informed and victim-centered practices on sets, um, especially within true crime. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit about the changes you are pushing for um, and just kind of your thoughts around that? I know that I know you you enjoy true crime. I per se do not, but um, I wouldn't say that. I would never. Okay, I, 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 thought I, you, I thought you really enjoyed watching it. I yes and no. I I enjoy stuff like when it's like the forensic psych aspect okay. of it. I don't enjoy the trauma tourism or the oh no, yeah. Uh, so it's so like could it's you like, differentiate for people what those two are? Oh, sure. I think that's important. Sure. So in in my opinion, in the opinion of a lot of people, there's like a whole movement, right? Kind of post me too. There's a lot of us survivors that are sort of discussing, like there's uh, Tara Newell, Collier Landry, Sarah Turney, there's a whole bunch of us sort of having the conversation around ethical true crime, which is something where the individuals are not harmed in the making, they're, they're, they're consensually, because what people don't understand, and remember, I'm a career TV producer as well, so I know how the sausage is made. So yeah. it's kind of a weird thing to then be on camera, and I've had harm done to me. People don't realize that with these stories, because of First Amendment rights, you have no control. They can do your story without your consent. Producers will manipulate you, coerce you, say, well, we're doing your story. Don't you want to get ahead of it? They will manipulate you into saying sound bites that are not authentic to your experience because that's the clickbait that they want. Like, there's a lot of harm that's done. I mean, there was a very popular, it had 17 million viewers when my episode was on and they interviewed my stalker without my consent. They didn't ask me. They didn't tell me. I didn't know until he was threatening me. And I really believe that's what triggered him to attempt to kidnap me. Now, I understand why the producers did the interview. I have the thing nobody has, which is this very compelling footage of my stalker saying why he's not like fully admitting it. And like, it's also crazy. People didn't believe me until I had this footage, like same thing is happening, but now I have him threatening. Right. Um, but at the same time, so the producers got this like very compelling footage, but it really put me at risk. And I probably would have said yes, but I just would like to have had the heads up, the warning, the, you know, the respect to ask me, um, you know, there's a lot of times where the families are mistreated. You know, we have this expression in reality TV, which also applies here, which is where, um, they bring you in on a limo, you go home on the bus, you know, it's like they get what they want from you and then they're done with you. There's no aftercare. Like, so I worked with some people who worked on intervention. And when I found out that all the addicts on intervention were given six months of therapy afterwards, I was like, this is beautiful. Why don't crime survivors get that sort of aftercare? So that's why I started my company. I started talking to other high profile survivors and realizing that the mistreatment that I experienced was not unique to me, that it was very common. So I started, I, the company is called Lenore Claire Consulting, not because I'm some like egomaniac. I just thought it was going to be me. I thought it was going to just start with me. And it was like my company and my original role. I don't know if the listeners are aware. There's this really beautiful uh, job that was created sort of recently on scripted films and television called an intimacy coordinator. And that's somebody who's on set who makes sure that the actors are respected, the love scenes and the nudity or, you know, everything's like above board. And I was like, this is really cool. But wait a second. So somebody who's portraying a sexual assault survivor will have this consideration, but a real sex assault survivor, you get nothing. Uh, this yep. is why. So when I conceived of my company, I was like, you know, I'm a producer. I'm also a survivor. I can be that liaison 
between production and the victim survivor. And then I was like, but wait a second. Okay. So I also started realizing that there's like so much work to be done. Like somebody needs to be consulting about, you know, there's just certain things which I particularly find in bad taste. Like if we're going to, we'll single out Netflix here with the Night Stalker documentary. They had very graphic crime scene depictions. That story is compelling with the interviews. You really don't need those photos. That was just really in my mind in poor taste. So I was like, you know, production companies and networks, they could actually like who better than survivors to, to be a panel and just be like, hey, we're not here to, you know, censor anyone, but let's make some mindful recommendations about how we can do better. And then on top of it, I started getting really pissed off because a lot of these shows just have like any random ding dong coming on as an expert. And I was like, hold on a minute, let's have, I have access to like the best forensic psychologists, progressive prosecutors, really wonderful homicide. Let let me, because I'm casting background, let me just put the talent on there as well. So it's also, so say, for example, with the, the scripted and unscripted work that we do, you could, like Amanda Knox is part of my company. Like you could hire her if you're doing a movie about wrongful conviction. You want to know what that's like? Talk to Amanda Knox. Yep. So, you know, I just think that was so important. And um, I'm about to sign an NDA, so I, I can't disclose it, but we just, the biggest contract we have yet, it's going to be a huge documentary about a very um, high profile terrible individual in the music industry who's harmed a lot of people. And we're going to be working directly with the victims to make sure that they're respected at creating the aftercare for them. And this is new. This is, this is not, everyone's just like, oh, we didn't know. And I'm like, yeah, because I invented it. This is not a yeah. thing. To my knowledge, my company, my company is the first company to do this. So um, it was also a way, you know, for a lot of the survivors to, who, who do media. And again, I want, there's, there's, so many survivors, but not everybody does media, but the ones who do choose to do media for us to be able to all come together and be like, well, this producer did something shady or, you know, or this network was really wonderful to work with so that we could all communicate amongst ourselves. Absolutely. I, I love it. I think it's really like such important work. I know you helped me with that personally. So thank you for that. Um, I think a couple times now, and I'm so grateful for that to be able to reach out and be like, hey, is this network good or what What should I be doing? And I'm really excited to see the work that comes out of this and just the cultural changes around these stories, I think is so monumental. So as we begin to close down today, because that flew by, as Lenore and I know, we can talk for hours, but we want to be mindful of time. Um, I think I just want to close with asking, you know, what makes Stalking Awareness Month so important to you? Wow. I mean, I guess, do you want to, do you want to start about talking about Debbie? Because I, she's, she's founded it. Yeah, we actually talked, yeah, we talked about Debbie and Debbie's been on before. So yes. So yes, we talked about her last episode and, um, and I interviewed Debbie several seasons ago. So she's been on. Yeah. Great. So yes, yes. Listen to last week's episode. And then also if you go back to season one, uh, you can hear Debbie Riddle who started Stalking Awareness Month. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, you have to, it's just, it's, I mean, again, it's the, I just, I, I think about her and her sister's story a lot. Right. Um, but as far as the need, look, let's stalking. We say this all the time. Stalking is sort of culturally where sexual assault was in the seventies. It's really misunderstood. And again, the nature of the crime, a lot of us aren't dying to tell our stories so it's just the, people even if they want to understand they don't or the media just sort of runs with the celebrity aspect of some of these cases and so people don't realize that that's not 
in any way relevant to the reality, right? So it's super important, especially it's it's a crime that's so underreported. We don't even really have, we're sort of guessing on the stats. Yep. So awareness and education are the most important component to advancing us to how we can handle people and how we can make things better. So I mean, it's this weird thing where you're like, I don't want there to be a month because I don't want there to be a problem. I want it to be okay, but the problem is here. And so I'm so grateful that we have this month. I always say, I feel like Santa of January, we're both everywhere. You know what I yeah, mean? Exactly. Like, doing all the things, but like, even in the past couple of years of doing this work, my schedule is crazier. So I'm like, wow, people are really responding to it. It's really, the need yeah. is there. And then, you know, I don't know if your listeners are aware of the new CDC stats, which you know, we sort of were working off these old stats, I think from 2013, where it was like, what, 7.5 million Americans. Now they're saying 13. Yep. But more importantly, it, the old stats kind of reflected overwhelming majority being this intimate partner violence. And that wasn't anecdotally what I was seeing at all. I was seeing really like 50-50 being the like stranger or acquaintance and then intimate partner. And so, you know, with that, it's like, well, thanks, internet. You know, that's really like shifted a lot of stuff. So, because everybody is on the internet, I think this month is so important because even who it's happening to is shifting and how it's happening is shifting and the cyber element. So I feel like as, I mean, for the fact that since the last ads came up, it doubled yep. from what was reported, right? <laughs> so this is now silent epidemic here. So, um, you know, I just, I, I'm just so grateful that we have this month where our signal is boosted and, you know, we all can come together and, and just kind of, because we're doing this work year round. There is no break. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> there is no off switch, but I would, yeah. I, you know, I would echo you too. I was noticing the other day as I was looking through like my Instagram feed, how much more stalking prevention and awareness that I was seeing being posted by so many different agencies through their yeah. hashtags, as opposed to three years ago as opposed yeah. to two or even one year ago. So I I really think this awareness component is so important to help victims identify and also for perpetrators to see and go, oh, oh, I'm, I'm doing those behaviors. Like, you know, not everyone is as escalated as per se the situations that you and I have had, but might be doing some of those behaviors to a former partner or whatever and be able to go, oh, that's stalking. I should not be doing that and be able to shift that behavior. Yeah. I mean, even if we're just talking like pop culture and, and true crime, right? So when we were young and OJ trial was happening with Nicole Brown Simpson, obviously we were discussing the homicide as a culture, but the stalking component, which was very much present, there was no conversation around that. And now with the, the tragedy in Idaho, they're really zeroing in on the stalking component. And Absolutely. that's actually part of the conversation, right? So even how we we treat the most extreme version of the crime is like, it's you know, it's a problem because a lot of times when it escalates to homicide, they don't try the stalking element. They just go, so people don't even realize the stalking component to it, Yep. right? So, you know, as painful as it is to single this discussion out, but it's also, we need we need to show what ha you know we need to have that part of the conversation so just looking that in the pop culture sphere it's very meaningful that now it's being it's being named it's being called out which it really wasn't before absolutely yes so keep naming it i mean the slogan yeah. is know it name it stop it so please continue to do that um to our listeners i you know as we wind down thank you so much for coming on today lenora um it's always such a pleasure 
to have you and get to chat with you. Um, if you want to learn more about Lenora's work, you can go to LenoraClaireLLC.com. And I always like to end this um, with a positive message to victim and survivors who are listening. So do you have just a sentence or two positive message to leave um, those folks with today? Yeah, just that you're, you're, you're deserving of all the good things. You're deserving of happiness. You're deserving of safety. And no matter what trauma you've endured in your life, you know, you, you, you can push through it and you can have the awesome life that you deserve. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are living proof of that. It's not always easy, but we are creating awesome lives amongst everything that has happened to in our lives. So that's a good reminder. So <clears throat> if you have any questions about the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, uh, Anna at standupresources.com. Uh, once again, thank you so much, Lenora, for being here. Such a great joy and honor to connect with you. Um, I'm your host, Anna Nassett, and I look forward to sharing more with you every other week on The Wind. Be well. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or feedback. We love hearing new topic ideas from listeners and watchers as well. Thank you for listening to The Mend and be well.